Well, good morning again. We're um, going to be looking at a passage that you aren't very familiar with. It's going to be Luke 1, chapter 1, verses 26 through 38. Evidently, we're all on the same page as far as that passage is concerned, if you want to turn there. And while you're doing that, let me start off by saying this. You know, who your mother is can sometimes make all the difference, and sometimes who she is can even be indispensable to your mission. And I'll just give you a little personal story here as an example. Um, you know, many, many of you have heard of a honey-do list, right? That never-ending list of things that have to be done around the house that usually gets designated to one spouse or the other. Well, when I go to visit my mom in New York, which I did a couple weeks ago, usually a Tommy-do list is waiting for me. All these things that she wants me to do, and they're usually IT-related. You know, there's this error message that keeps popping up on my computer, or how do I do this on the iPad? And, and this last time, um, I was helping her with her email, and in the process of helping her, we got locked out of her account. So you assume that was my fault. That's very funny. I heard the chuckles <laughs> over there. <laughs> and with Hotmail, you have to get a code in order to unlock your account, and they either need to text it to a phone number or automatically call a number and give it to you that way. And the problem was, is that when we set up my mother's account, okay, when I set up my mother's account, <laughs> I put her work number down at her request. And this was a Saturday morning. So how are we gonna get this code, right? So I said, okay, I'm not gonna make my mom drive all the way down to her office to get it. So she gave me the key to her building. And the plan was, is I'd go to her work and I'd call Hotmail and, or do whatever I had to do and they would call me with the code. And the problem was, is number one was a Saturday morning, right? And the security department happens to be located in her building. And in fact, the security guard was right there as I strolled in the front door. So here I am in my mother's office on a Saturday morning, having to explain who I am, what I'm doing there, and why I have a key to the building. And I walk up to him very, um, very graciously, very gently, and say, well, I, I'm, I'm Tom Rubino, and I'm Marlene's son, and it's a long story, but I'm here to help my mother with, you know, with her email, and I need to just get into her office for a few minutes. And I, and I reached my wallet, and I took out my, my license to, to show him. And as I was doing that, he looked at it, but he said, no, no, no that's okay, you go on ahead. So I put my wallet away, and I started walking to my mom's office. And I know that he watched me to make sure that I went to the right office, right? Now, what, I, what you don't know about the story is that my mom has been working at this place for over 30 years. And she knows everybody there, and everybody likes and respects her. So when I said I was Marlene's son, that's all I had to say. That was my ticket to get access to her office, right, and to, and to do what I needed to do. Now, if that was true for me a few weeks ago, it's especially true for Jesus. Who Jesus' mother was made all the difference. And having the mother he did was indispensable to his mission as our Savior. Now, again, last week, one of the passages we looked at was this passage we're going to read again. And we also read it as part of the Advent uh, candle lighting. But last week, Jeff talked about the importance of Jesus being a son of David. This week, we're going to talk about the importance of Jesus being the son of Mary. Now, please know this sermon is not going to be about Mary. It's going to be about Jesus. But more specifically, how Jesus, in order to be Savior, had to have a human mother. 
how Jesus being human was absolutely indispensable to his mission. You know, Christmas season is a time that we, you know, we celebrate the birth of Jesus, that we, you know, we're just amazed by how the God of the universe could put on a body of flesh and, and dwell among us. And we rejoice in the birth of that Jesus who's known as Emmanuel, right? Which means God is, is with us. We proclaim his divinity as our Messiah, and rightfully we should. But my goal this morning is to encourage us to also remember that Jesus was born the son of Mary, that he was a man, he was a human being. And like I said, his humanity was just as critical to his mission as our Savior. So if you'll please turn to me to Luke chapter 1, and we'll read this passage together. Luke 1, 26 through 38. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. And the virgin's name was Mary. And he came to her and said, Greetings, O favored one. The Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at, at the saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High, and the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. And Mary said to the angel, How will this be, since I'm a virgin? And the angel answered her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. And behold, your relative Elizabeth in her old age has also conceived a son, and this is the sixth month with her who is called barren, for nothing will be impossible with God. And Mary said, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed her. Let's pray together. Father, I just ask, as we look at this very familiar passage this morning to all of us, every, every Christmas, we, you know, in all the churches around the world, including this one, we, we look at this passage, and rightfully so, I pray it wouldn't be old hat to us, and I pray that uh, you would even now be preparing our hearts to hear your truth, and to not only hear it and understand it, but to have it change our hearts, Father. Let us have a new appreciation for how your son, Jesus, had to be a human being as well as God. And Father, I pray for myself that you would equip me even now for this task. Let nothing come out of my mouth that is in, that is in conflict with your word. And even now, let your Holy Spirit be enable me to faithfully preach the word to our flock here. And it's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. You know, there was a early heresy that crept in to the church or very early on, and it was called docetism. And that's from the Greek verb dokeo, which means to seem or appear. And you're going to understand why they called it docetism in a second. Docetism had a dualistic view of the world in that docetists saw spirit as good and they saw matter as evil. So the docetists couldn't handle Jesus having an actual body. Why? Well, because if Jesus has a body, his flesh is matter. 
And if it's matter, then it's evil. And there's no way that Jesus could have a body. So they taught that Jesus didn't have a real body, that he actually only, he was a spirit that seemed or appeared to have a human body. Now, of course, if this is true, you know, then Jesus was the David Blaine or David Copperfield of his day, right? Because the illusion he pulled off on the cross would be unbelievable, right? I mean, we, we laugh at this. We think this is a little absurd. But the reality is, is it really threatened the early church so much so the Apostle John had to actually address it in one of his letters. So if you'll turn with me to 1 John um, chapter 4, verses 1 through 3, we'll go ahead and take a look at that. I'm going the wrong way. There, that's not my passage. There we go. First John 4, 1 through 3. Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God. For many false prophets have gone into the world. By this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus has come in the flesh is from God. And every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you heard was coming and now is in the world already. Wow. I mean, so now to John, you can see that Jesus' humanity is indispensable. He had to be a human being. He, this can't be compromised. It's even the spirit of the Antichrist that says that he didn't come in the flesh. But why? Well, one reason is because the Messiah was supposed to be a human being. Jesus claimed to be the Messiah, and he had to be a human being if he was going to be the Messiah. Think about all the promises that God made to his people in the Old Testament. You know, even as far back as Genesis 3, in the midst of the aftermath of Adam and Eve's rebellion and the fall and the sin and corruption that entered the world because of the fall, in the midst of all that, God promises Eve that one day her seed will crush the serpent's head, that her human descendant would triumphantly defeat Satan once and for all. Think about what he promised to Abraham. He promised him land, yes. He also promised him more descendants that he could count. He promised that he would be a blessing to all nations, that kings would come from him. He promised David a little later on, as we looked at last week, that one of his descendants would sit on the throne forever. And Israel's prophets centered the fulfillment of these promises and so many others right smack on the one who is coming, the promised Messiah, the son of David. He would be the one that would gather exiled Israel into one nation again, who would restore their relationship with God. So that once again, God would be their God and they would be his people. One of my favorite books is Ezekiel. It's, it's not exactly easy sledding, so to speak. But I love it because as he prophesies, his prophecies bring together all these promises that God made to his people, to Abraham, to David, you know, as far as he includes all the covenants and their fulfillment like Moses. And I just, I love it, especially if you'll turn there, Ezekiel 37, we're going to be looking at 21 through 28, okay? So let's turn there and listen to how he interweaves God's promises, some of which we've talked about and how his covenants are sprinkled throughout this, and how it's all focused on the Davidic king who is to come, starting with verse 21. And I will make them one nation, 
in the land on the mountains of Israel. And one king shall be king over them all, and they shall be no longer two nations and no longer divided into two kingdoms. They shall not defile themselves any more with their idols and their detestable things or with any of their transgressions. But I will save them from all their backslidings in which they have sinned, and I will cleanse them. And they shall be my people, and I will be their God. Now listen to this. My servant David. Now remember, they're in exile right now. Okay? The kings are gone. And there's no hope of another Davidic king sitting on the throne at this point. But this is what Ezekiel prophesies to them. My servant David shall be king over them, and they shall have one shepherd. They shall walk in my rules and be careful to obey my statutes. Mosaic covenant right there. They shall dwell in the land that I gave to my servant Jacob, where your fathers lived. They and their children and their children's children shall dwell there forever. Abrahamic. And David, my servant, shall be their prince forever. I will make a covenant of peace with them. It shall be an everlasting covenant with them. And I will set them in their land and multiply them and will set my sanctuary in their midst forevermore. My dwelling place shall be with them and I will be their God and they shall be my people. That is unbelievable. God declares through Ezekiel, even when things look so hopeless to them, right? The nation's been conquered. The people have been exiled. They're reaping the judgment that their unfaithfulness has brought upon them, their idolatry. And yet, even though they're unfaithful, God is going to be faithful to his promises. And they're all centered on the Davidic Messiah. And remember what Isaiah prophesies about that coming Messiah. In Isaiah 7.14, if you remember a very well-known verse, he says this, Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. The sign that Messiah had come will be that he will be born of a virgin. He will be a human being, but he will also be called Emmanuel, or God is with us, which speaks to his divinity. And again, Isaiah touches on this in another place, in Isaiah chapter 9, verses 6 through 7. He points to both the divinity and the humanity when he says this, For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God. Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace, of the increase of a government and peace, there will be no end on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Now, why am I making such a big deal about this? Because in our passage this morning, Luke proclaims that Jesus is indeed this promised Messiah. He is proclaiming that Isaiah 7 and Isaiah 9 are being fulfilled. I mean, the, first the angel Gabriel tells Mary that she will bear the Davidic Messiah. If you look back at verses 31 through 34, this is what he tells her. He says this, And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, 
And you shall call his name Jesus, and he will be great, called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he'll reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom there will be no end. Does that sound familiar? Isaiah 9, to us a child is born. He will reign on David's throne forevermore. Sound familiar? But it's also clear this is no ordinary pregnancy, right? Why? Because Mary is, is a virgin. And if you don't know what that means, I'm going to punt that to your parents to, to explain to you later. But Mary was a virgin. Luke makes this clear in verses 26 and 27, right? He says, in the sixth month, they went to Nazareth, and an angel appeared to a virgin betrothed. And the virgin's name was Mary, in verse 27. And even her response, when, angel, when Gabriel tells her she's going to conceive, what's Mary's response? Well, it's very understandable. She says, you know, how, how will this be? How am I going to conceive? I'm, I'm a virgin, after all. I mean, Gabriel, don't you know how biology works here? This is impossible. But does that sound familiar? A virgin conceiving. Isaiah 7, Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son. Luke is declaring that Jesus is the Davidic Messiah, the one through whom God would fulfill all his promises. And just like all the other writers of the New Testament declare him to be, and just like Jesus declared about himself, that he was, in fact, that Messiah. But... If Jesus is not a man, if he's not a human being, then either he is a bold-faced liar or he's tragically deluded. And Luke and all the other writers are charlatans and the New Testament cannot be trusted and it's not the word of God and God's promises are still hanging out there unfulfilled. And our faith is a sham. But the good news this morning is that we do stand on the shoulders of the Apostle John and by the Spirit of God we do confess this morning that Jesus did come in the flesh. He was a man. He is a man. He is a human being. This Christmas season we celebrate the birth of a flesh and blood baby who was Emmanuel, God with us. And in doing so, we also declare the faithfulness of our God, who even when making them thousands and thousands of years before, always keeps his promises. And the Christ child is proof of that. So it's with expectancy and hope and confidence that we look to the future, knowing that our faithful and our good and our sovereign God, the one who kept his promise of sending his son the first time, well, certainly can be counted on to deliver when it comes to his promise of sending him the second time. And so we rest in that. So we've been stressing the point that Jesus had to be a human being and that one of the reasons is because he has to fulfill Isaiah's prophecy in, in chapter 7, 14, right? The Messiah would be born of a virgin. In order to be born of a virgin or anyone for that matter, you have to be a human baby. So if Jesus wasn't, and he isn't a human being, then all this comes crashing down like a house of cards for us. And this is why scholars who are hostile towards Christianity 
tend to target the virgin birth as whether it really happened or not because they, they know that our faith depends upon it. And they'll say things like, you know, the Hebrew word in Isaiah 7.14 really, you know, we translate a virgin, but that's not what it means. And, and you know, Matthew and Luke just kind of misunderstood it or twisted it when they were saying that Jesus fulfilled that. Now, I, I, I would love, if you want to talk about that, I would love to chat about that after the service um, because there, there, are, there are answers to those objections. Because I, I don't have the time this morning to go through all the ins and, and outs of it this morning. But just know, um, with all due respect, that assertions like that are a bunch of hogwash. Jesus was born of a virgin. Mary was a virgin. And Isaiah was prophesying about a virgin, and there is no doubt of that. And sometimes we just have to realize that scholarship isn't very scholarly because of the agenda that may be driving it. And in this case, that is, that's true, I think. But let's talk about another reason why the virgin birth is indispensable. Remember, a couple of weeks ago, Dave Doris was preaching in Romans 5, and he talked about how because Adam rebelled against God as our representative, representative of the human race, you know, the guilt of his sin against God has been imputed, big word, or credited, or passed on to us, right? And that we also inherit Adam and Eve's sinful, corrupted natures. Now, if we stop and think about what I just said for a minute, okay, it creates a problem for us initially, because if Jesus is fully human, from a human perspective, then like the rest of us, he's a descendant of Adam and Eve. And if he's a descendant of Adam, like the rest of us, then he would spiritually inherit the same guilt and sinful nature from our first parents that we did. Right? So how did the fully human Jesus escape this? How did he avoid being stained by that inherited sin and corruption and guilt. Well, as you know, as my 10th grade biology teacher used to say when you asked a great question, he would say, that's a humdinger of a question right there, right? That's a great question. And I think the answer comes in, in two parts. So the first part is that the virgin birth disrupted the natural line of descent from Adam. Now, what I mean by that is, you know, how is this? Because Jesus didn't have a human father. All human beings have descended from Adam and Eve, and all have done it by having both a father and a mother, but by having just a human mother, Jesus disrupted that natural process. He didn't descend from Adam in the same exact way that every other human being does. So in this way, the direct line of descent from Adam was supernaturally broken or interrupted. Now, don't, don't misunderstand me. He's still fully human. He's got Mary's DNA, okay? But because he has no human father, the normal chain has been broken. So Jesus doesn't share in Adam's inheritance of that guilt and corruption. So that's the first part. Well, okay, Tom, that, that, that makes sense. But, you know, he still had a human mother. You know, okay, why, why didn't he inherit these things from Mary? This guilt and this corruption. Here's where the second part of the answer comes in. Now, some, recognizing this dilemma that we're talking about, teach that this inherited guilt and sinful nature is only transmitted through the Father. And that's why Jesus um, didn't inherit it himself, because he didn't have a father. And I understand where they're coming from. I, I am not, I'm not convinced that Scripture clearly teaches that at all. 
Now some others get around it by kind of focusing on Mary and teaching that Mary's birth was also miraculous in that she was born without original sin or guilt, which is what we're talking about. And that's a doctrine that you may have heard of. It's called the Immaculate Conception. Okay? Now, in verse 28 of our passage this morning, Gabriel calls Mary the favored one. He says the Lord is with her. And in verse 30, he says that she has found favor with God. And all of these things are absolutely true of all the women in the world. The billions and billions of women, according to his own mysterious counsel and will, God blessed Mary by choosing her to bear our Savior. And for that, she deserves to be honored and respected. But nothing in the Bible teaches that Mary was born without this inherited guilt or sinful nature. In fact, a little later in the chapter, Mary refers to God my Savior. So it's hard for me to see why she would need a savior if something like the Immaculate Conception was, was true and biblical. So both of these explanations kind of fall short in addressing the Mary question. I think the best answer is just found in the text itself. After Mary asks how she's going to bear this child because she's a virgin, Gabriel responds with this proclamation, starting in verse 35. He says this, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. And behold, your relative Elizabeth in her old age has conceived a son. And this is the sixth month with her who is called barren. For nothing will be impossible with God. How will a virgin conceive the Messiah child? Generally speaking, because nothing is impossible with God. I mean, Mary, if your famously barren cousin, Elizabeth, is suddenly six months pregnant in her old age, then God can enable you, a virgin, to conceive a son. And the child will be called holy. Why? Well, not because you're holy, Mary, but because the child will be conceived by the power of of the Holy Spirit, because the Most High, the power of the Most High will overshadow her. Jesus was fully human. He had Mary's DNA, but he was born holy, born, from, born free from the inherited guilt and sinful nature that the rest of us get, because he was conceived in her womb by the sanctifying power of the Holy Spirit. Now, once your head stops spinning for a few minutes over all this stuff, can we just stop for a second and just think about the amazing wisdom of God in this? I mean, only God could have thought of this, right? I mean, not only does a virgin birth get around the whole guilt-corruption thing, but it allows divinity and humanity to be perfectly united in one person. I mean, think about this. Jesus could have become a complete human being in heaven and then just descended down to earth without having any human parents, right? But then, if that happened, we'd all be struggling with seeing how he was fully human. He didn't have any parents. He just came down, you know? Jesus could have been born having two parents, and that could have been the miracle, and then just had his divine nature miraculously united to his human nature later on. But then we would struggle with seeing how 
he was fully God because he had two human parents. So in his wisdom, God took on a body of flesh by being born of a virgin, born of a woman. So we see and understand that he is fully human and born of a virgin, so we see his divinity displayed by the powerful work of the Holy Spirit. And to me, this is the miracle of Christmas. You know, another thing the virgin birth proclaims to us is that salvation must come from the Lord. I mean, when we consider all that God had to do, you know, to come into this world as a human being, I mean, first he has to establish the eternal plan of redemption before the beginning of time, and then he has to sovereignly make and fulfill promises, and then he has to enable a virgin to conceive and give birth to the God-man. I mean, we think about this and we realize that salvation could never come through our effort, through human effort. It must be the work of God, the supernatural work of God. We cannot save ourselves. And also, the virgin birth shows us this, how desperately lost and hopeless we are apart from Jesus Christ. See, the need for the virgin birth shows us the reality of our own guilt before God. It, it shows us how pervasive and enslaving and powerful our sin really is. And as the virgin birth cries out as a sign that Emmanuel has come, it also confronts us because we come face to face with our own desperate need of that newborn Savior. How thankful we are this morning, Father, that our Savior was born to an unknown peasant girl in an obscure little town some 2,000 years ago. And when he grew up, he would willingly take our place on that cross. Thank you, Father. See, that, that's another another reason why Jesus had to be human, in order to take our place, you see. You see, as direct descendants of Adam, we're in a dreadful situation. Not only have we inherited Adam's guilt, but as our own inherited sinful natures work themselves out, we accumulate you know, a lot of our own guilt in that equation, right? And that's a problem, because as those made in God's image, we're obligated to obey God He's our creator. He's our God. And we keep marring that image by rebelling against him and thumbing our noses at our God, our creator. And instead of reflecting his image, instead of reflecting righteousness and holiness, we choose sin and evil. And so what, what mess are we in? Well, we, we owe two debts to God, which we have no hope of paying. And the first one is the debt of perfect obedience, which is what we all owe as those who have been made in God's image. And the second debt is the debt of perfect justice because those who rebel and sin against an eternally holy, holy, holy God, which means you and it means me, we owe the debt to that eternal God of eternal punishment. And if we are to have any hope that these debts are going to be paid. We'll have to rely on somebody else to pay them for us. And the one who pays them for us will have to be just like us, the ones who owe that debt. The one who takes our place has to be a human being just like us. And that's why Jesus' humanity is so essential. He can't take the place of human beings 
unless he is a human being himself. Only a man can be the second Adam and succeed as our representative where the first one failed. Only another human being can take our place in regards to perfect obedience. We fail to perfectly keep God's law and commandments. Jesus kept them in our place. And his righteousness has been credited to our account. That's why Paul can say in Romans 5, 9, he can say this, For as by the one man's disobedience the many were made sinners. And he's talking about Adam. So by the one man's obedience the many will be made righteous. And he's talking about Jesus Christ. Righteousness, his righteousness credited to our account. We also had that debt of condemnation. And to satisfy God's just condemnation of sinful human beings, Jesus had to become one of them again, to be our substitute in sacrifice. Allowing himself to be crucified on the cross when he had no guilt, when he had committed no sin, bearing the full fury of God's eternal wrath so that we would never have to. It's no wonder that Isaiah prophesied about Jesus the suffering servant in Isaiah 53, verses 4 and 5. He prophesied this about the coming Messiah, the coming suffering servant. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his stripes, we are healed. Jesus had to be our substitute and sacrifice on the cross. My brothers and sisters, what, what kind of a God would do this? What kind of a God would do this? a God who is absolutely under no obligation to save any of us, a God who could have justly left us all to perish. What, what kind of a God would shower such grace and such mercy upon us, ones who are so undeserving? What kind of a God would come to earth and become one of us, to obey and do what we could never do, to, to sacrifice himself, to bear what we could never bear. What kind of a God would do this? What kind of a God would do this? Well, for some of us here today, it's also the God who is calling you to make a decision regarding Jesus Christ. Will you continue to ignore your desperate need for rescue? Would you continue to hide behind, well, I'm a pretty good person? Will you continue to turn your back on the grace and the mercy that is so freely offered in Jesus Christ? I hope not. And I, I pray that your Christmas present this year will be peace with God and the salvation of your souls. And if that's something you'd like to talk about, please, Come and see me after the service. I'd love to talk to you. What kind of a God would do this? Well, for others of us here today, it's the same God who is now calling you to repentance, to flee that enslaving sin that so easily entangled you, to forsake those idols that you're turning to for comfort, 
or security, to ask for the faith and the grace to fight and to pursue holiness and righteousness. And for us, I pray that our Christmas gift this year will be a softened heart which seeks forgiveness and restoration from God and with God. What kind of a God would do this? Also, for some of us today, it's the same God who is interceding for you right now. The one who isn't blind to the burdens that you have been and are carrying. The one who isn't deaf to your cries for mercy and strength. The God who isn't ignoring your struggles and your pain and your suffering. The one who isn't as far away as he may seem to be. If this is you, I... I pray for a very gracious and special Christmas gift for you this year. I pray for a special sense of that God's presence in your life so that you would not feel so alone. I, I, I pray for a special awareness of his love and his care and his concern for you. And I encourage you to receive another benefit of Jesus being a human being. And this is it. This is Hebrews chapter 2. And four tells us that because Jesus was a human being, because he was made like us, like one of us, and he walked among us, he is therefore able to be our merciful and faithful high priest because he is able to sympathize with our weaknesses. And we can approach the heavenly throne room with confidence because Jesus is there unceasingly interceding for us night and day, and he will always be willing to give us the grace and the mercy that we so desperately need. So let's approach that throne of grace right now. Let's pray together. Father, we, we thank you we thank you for the birth of your son. It's more than just a cute little story that we tell every Christmas. It's a matter of life and death, of eternal life and eternal death. And we are so thankful that you condescended to become one of us. And we're so thankful that you died on the cross to save sinners of which all of us are. Would you shower that grace and mercy upon us this morning, Father? This Christmas, let us not worship traditions or worship presents or worship Santa or whatever it may, may be. Let us worship first and foremost and only our precious Savior, Jesus Christ who came as a baby and now stands at the right hand of God interceding for us because he knows what it's like to be one of us. How you have provided for us in all these things. And we pray all these things in the name of the one who made all of that provision, Jesus Christ. Amen.
chapter 4, verses 14 through 16. Since then, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast to our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then, with confidence, draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in our time of need. Brothers and sisters, go in peace.